0: We are here. We are here for all of us, sings Alicia Keys. We here at Solutions to Violence Radio and our guest today, Johanna Solomon, are also here for all of us. All of you listening to our program today and everyone else, regardless of where you come from. Welcome, friends. You are listening to Solutions to Violence, and we're glad you have joined us. Solutions to Violence airs on WFMP 106.5 FM radio. The following is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Dr. Johanna Solomon. I'm Jim Johnson here with Jamie McMillan. We are your hosts for Solutions of Balance. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Today's Solutions of Balance guest is an interdisciplinary scholar and conflict resolution practitioner, Dr. Johanna Solomon. Welcome Dr. Solomon to Solutions to Violence.
1: Great to be here. Dr. Joanna Solomon is, as we have mentioned, an interdisciplinary scholar and conflict resolution practitioner interested in core questions of identity, including religious, cultural, national, and gender identities in peace and reconciliation. Her work focuses on political science with strong roots in political psychology, social psychology, psychology and sociology and cultural anthropology. It is based in a scholar-practitioner approach informed by her own work and training in mediation, negotiation, conciliation, and facilitation. Dr. Sullivan is an assistant professor at Kent State University in the School of Peace and Conflict Studies, focusing on community conflicts and conflict resolution. Her work focuses on community-engaged scholarship on issues of identity. Her current projects are focused on US-based community building across differences. She is a certified mediator in California with hundreds of hours of mediation experience with conflict resolution practice working with programs such as the Alternatives to Violence Project. Welcome again, Dr. Solomon. We're looking forward to discussing your experience and so much uh, more you have to offer. Let's begin our discussion. Dr. Solomon, we touched on some of your experience professionally, but we would like to know more about how it is you decided to go into your chosen career. When and how did you decide counseling, mediation, the practical experience of applying it to life, and what are some influences that led you to counseling and mediation as a line focus.
2: I really appreciate that question and often talk to my students about how some of the best work in conflict resolution is based in our own personal experiences and identity and learning from our own backgrounds and bringing that uh, to try and help others. So my background is that I grew up in a place that was relatively diverse, I, despite being a small town and a family that was very good at debating and having difficult conversations at the table. We were not a quiet bunch, and oh, I always knew that my family had a focus on helping others. My maternal family members have a history of being in nursing. I don't like needles or blood, so I was looking for a path where I could really help people, and I knew my father had done research and had looked at kind of more academic paths. But in the hard sciences, math wasn't my strong point. So I was really searching for what was my strength. And I learned that my strength was being that person that could have difficult conversations with people that came to our Thanksgiving table that were from different religious backgrounds or different political backgrounds. And that I was really good at listening to people when they were having a really hard time. So when I went to college, I thought I was going to... To go into psychiatry, but I wanted to have a basis in counseling. And I studied a lot of cultural anthropology and did a lot of interviews and listening to people from different cultures. So that's what I thought I was going to do. And in addition to having a a background in this from my family, we all run into just different situations where we are thrown into paths we didn't expect. So, amidst my undergraduate studies, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. And I learned that psychiatry is not something that gives you as much human interaction and counseling as I was looking for in a career. So I actually did a master's program in counseling kind of on my own, separately from that, still thinking I was going into medical school. I ended up specializing in large groups and adolescents, so occasionally large groups of people yelling at each other, but that had mutual interests and really did want to get along, to understand each other, but had had trauma or difficult backgrounds and needed help having those conversations. From there, I realized that I did not want to go into psychiatry. And I was looking at a a PhD program that would help me have those really big group conversations in a way that could better people's lives. So I went into a political psychology program at UC Irvine to really get those skills. And along the way, ended up working with some amazing people, including an amazing peace builder named Paula Garb, who got me involved in ways that I could do that, not just at a scholarly level, but in the community. And that includes things like the Alternative to Violence Project that goes into prisons and alongside and learns from people who are incarcerated doing conflict management and conflict resolution. And I also worked with the Community Relations Service, which is a part of the Federal government, a branch of the Department of Justice, learning how to do this kind of large group work in all sorts of different community settings. So my path was winding, and I did end up with a degree in political science, but I was lucky enough to find mentors along the way and really find my home in peace and conflict studies.
1: Well, it's a fascinating com- combination. Mm-hmm. The conflict resolution that we know as one way to apply solutions to violence. You have a connection to conflict resolution programs like the Alternatives to Violence Project. It's a grassroots conflict resolution right program begun by incarcerated people. Tell us about how you were involved with Alternatives to Violence Project. And what has it done for you uh, as a professional and individual?
2: I got involved. Uh, During my graduate work, so probably at this point about 15 years ago, and I participated in a training and I took a basic AVP course and those basic introduction AVP courses, we call them basic and then advanced and then train the trainer usually, although that language sometimes changes a little. So I took a basic course for myself to learn how to be a better conflict resolver, to listen to my own needs alongside the same time I was taking a course in mediation. Thank and i learned a lot about myself i expected to go in as an academic and i would listen and i would observe and i cried and i cried with other people and i hugged people and i learned things and we we were silly together and we all learned about each other but we learned about ourselves and i really cemented for me the idea that we need to be self-aware and we need to know ourselves before we can go out and do this work with other people and we also need to make space for those things I learned in counseling, that we need to actively listen. We need to make space for others to tell their truths and to go through hard moments and not just jump to solutions. That part of being a good conflict resolver is allowing people to have feelings and to voice those and often to be listened to by others, whether a person that's harmed them or just a group of people that might understand. So I did that training while I was in grad school and then I took an advanced training and I quickly realized that I wanted to do this more often and did a train the trainer program that allowed me to then go in to work with another a group of people so we go in in teams and do workshops both in the community and those sometimes include formerly incarcerated uh, facilitators leading with me um, or go into prison and learn from the people that are currently incarcerated how to often be a better conflict resolver myself even if I'm the one facilitating the workshop and I've been able to bring that model and those courses not only to my work that was during grad school in California, but I also continue to work with Brunell College, helping do a short course there in AVP to do the basic course as that college has been able to bring ABP into a local facility uh, there, a local prison, to learn with and from the people who are incarcerated doing conflict
0: management uh, in Iowa. Okay, so Johanna Solomon, your bio explains that your scholarship is much about political psychology, social psychology, sociology, and cultural anthropology. What's political psychology about and how does one apply political psychology to resolving conflict and promoting peace?
2: So to me, political psychology can be about a lot of things. Like any other field, it depends on how you use it. And I use the part of political psychology in my work to help me understand how people see themselves how they see others and how they work in groups that focuses on identity so my core area of concern is how we can think about our own identities how we can relate to other people's identities and how identities both cause conflict when they are not matching with things that we want or with other groups, but also how we can leverage those identities to find common interests and help us resolve conflicts. Political psychology itself is bigger than that, and there are people that look at how Psychology and human thought in individual or groups influences all sorts of politics. And by politics, we mean any way that people have power with or, or above other people. So in the broadest sense of the term, right, when we have power in groups, that is part of politics. And political psychology looks at how people think more broadly and how that can be applied to understanding all sorts of parts of kind of how you would apply psychology in politics. But specifically for me, I look at those identity components and how we can think about that in peacebuilding work.
0: So how are these disciplines, political psychology, social psychology, and cultural anthropology applied to preventing violent conflict?
2: I can't speak for all of those disciplines. My background is mostly political psychology and political science, but I do have that counseling psychology piece and have studied other uh, things in my undergraduate work. So as a political psychologist, and the kind of thread that leads through this is that in all of these fields, we care about people, we care about how people organize with each other and are, are with each other in groups. So that can be issues of race or religion or other forms of identity. It, can also be how we do community organizing or community dialogue, which is something I believe in quite a bit. So it, it relates to kind of how people identify and also how we see power, how we see people in relation to each other and different kinds of power, things like political power or decision making power, but it, and also people power, community power, how those two kind of major components come together.
1: By specializing your work, you focus on academic work, right? And practice examining race and religious relations within the United States. You mentioned that this is academic work in, in relation to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In, in what areas of race and, and religious relations do you specialize and where do Israel, uh, these areas focus and relate to the relations of Israel and, and Palestine?
2: So my work is, I have studied several regions in my work and I have been to many places and countries. Being in Israel-Palestine is one of them. I also work in the United States, but what I study is a process. And in peace building, There's a phrase we use a lot, trust the process. I study the process. And one of the things I want to investigate is how we can understand the processes we use, when they work, when they don't, and also those power and identity dynamics in the process. So for example, do the processes we use work for people with less power in a situation, or either in the room or in politics? And do they work for people across cultures and identities? So Specifically, I study intergroup dialogue or community dialogue and look at intergroup contact theories. So I did a postdoc slash internship. I did a postdoc before I had actually finished my Ph.D. in Israel with a group that studies ways that we can use political psychology to build positive peace as well as peace in general. So negative peace, but also positive peace in Israel-Palestine. And I have observed and worked with groups like the Parent Circle there, that is an intergroup dialogue between bereaved parents that have lost children, sometimes siblings, it's expanded some in Israel-Palestine that are working together to create peace. Um, I've also worked in the United States with other groups here, whether it's interfaith dialogues or, most recently, a community dialogue between host community members and resettled refugees in a community that was trying to figure out how to meet everyone's needs and communicate about those needs and prioritize in where some of those issues are identity-based and some of them are often in these dialogues financial we can't do everything at the same time so my specialty is figuring out how to help facilitate those kinds of dialogues and study them
0: so phil giddens education director from world beyond war stated on our program Solution to violence, October 19th, that there are some 40 violent conflicts occurring in the world right now. As you pointed out, participated in conflict resolution training with Palestinians and Israelis. Talk about the price of war and violence and about the destruction caused by the Palestinian-Israeli conflict.
2: So I am not a foremost expert on all of what has happened in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but a piece I can speak to, as academics, we're experts in our own thing, What I can speak to is that in my field, we look at empathy and humanizing people. In other words, actually getting to know people and understand them on a human level, listening to them, having conversations, including difficult ones. And one of the things that I study is the loss of the ability to communicate across group lines. And I say group because there are religious lines in Israel-Palestine, but many of the more important ones are political. And people have lost the ability to communicate across those lines because of structures set up by governments that make it really difficult to move, to have free movement, um, to have conversations, to meet people that are different from yourself, for your kids to go to a preschool where they grow up learning about each other. And that dynamic of dehumanization, whether it's taught in schools or not, or it's just a day-to-day thing that you don't know people from other groups, in every cultural context in every nation when we don't know people that are different from us when we aren't friends genuinely with people who think or are from different backgrounds from us the information we get about other groups can be dehumanizing we see snippets from the news we see the worst case scenarios on tv shows or caricatures of who people really are and that can prevent us from seeing people that are different from us as partners in peace, as having common interests, and being able to engage in real meaningful peace-building conversations. So that's one thing that's been lost over time. I also, as a psychologist, think about issues like trauma and what happens in extended war zones, where how people think, uh, Danny Bartal, scholar, that was in Israel uh, for a very long time talks about routinization of conflict where over time the conflict feels normal and getting out of that bad situation feels like it could be risky. And even when you are currently in a risky situation, when you are in a violent conflict, when you are in a dehumanizing space that it becomes so normal to your life that it would actually disrupt the day-to-day flow of your life. It would disrupt how education is done. It would change kind of your dynamics of even speech and the words that we use to refer to things that we may not realize are militarized. And so through that process of the conflict becoming routine, the perspective that people that are in a short term conflict where they see they've lived in peace. And they know what they want to get back to can also be lost and takes effort to regain so that humanization piece the routinization piece are two components that are really challenging in israel-palestine but also in places like the united states where we have issues as well that carry some of those markers and It takes a concerted effort of professionals working on trauma, of professionals working to do intergroup dialogues, to change policies. The policies are important to uh, help people live with the concept that there could be positive change and that people on the other side also want or might want that positive change as well.
1: Yeah, you have worked with some initiatives like the Olive Tree Initiative, New Ground Muslim Jewish Partnership for Change, the Department of Justice Community Relations Service, National Conflict uh, Resolution Center. Tell us about your work with some of those initiatives.
2: Sure. So. Some of those initiatives are intergroup dialogue programs that focus on starting to build those humanized relationships across groups that began in situations where there was miscommunication and distrust. So the Olive Tree Initiative was founded on the UC Irvine campus at a time when there was a great deal of distrust between especially Jewish group and pro-Palestinian groups on campus. And there was not a lot of space to have a good informed conversation. So that initiative is one that I worked with and studied for quite a few years that takes students from backgrounds that are pro-Israel or Jewish, which is not the same thing, but from both of those backgrounds, also students who are pro-Palestinian or Arab, again, not the same identities, but often integrated, and students who are interested in peace building or who are knowledgeable or interested for uh, academic or personal reasons in other conflicts like Turkey, Armenia, and brings those groups together to have informed discussions about what is happening on campus and in the Middle East, and that often included classes that were taken together on the history of what's happened in Israel-Palestine multiple perspectives, it includes the history of what's happened in colonization or the Holocaust, and includes also classes on how to have those conversations, and then a trip that goes to, uh, at one point, Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, as well as D.C., to look at the interconnections and different perspectives. And I say different, and I don't, to be clear, just mean two perspectives. There is no such thing as an Israeli perspective or as a Palestinian perspective. There are many perspectives within Israel, Israel. There are liberal, progressive Jews in Israel who want peace, who are fans of multiple different options to have Palestinians, Palestine be recognized and Palestinians have full rights. And there are ultra-Orthodox Jews that are members of the government that have a very different perspective on what would be best for Israel. But similarly in palestine there are different perspectives about what should happen and what is the best way forward there are different perspectives in the rest of the arab world there are different perspectives in the united states and our goal wasn't to come up with a solution there are many people who have thought about that but to actually step back and listen to each other and send to experts and listen to everyday people and try to complicate our understanding of what is happening on the ground and then have conversations with each other about it. Newground is a similar organization in that it focuses on intergroup dialogue. That is an organization in Los Angeles that is celebrating, I believe it's 25 year anniversary coming up, and is came from the background of tensions in Los Angeles regarding tensions between the Jewish and Muslim communities and really wanting to work together, especially when those communities were faced with outside hate that focused on hate for all people who were not, you know, of a, a white Christian background. So as we probably all are aware, when faced with white supremacy or white nationalism, both Jews and Muslims, as well as people of color in general, are targeted. And so those communities really wanted to come together and work together to address those. And that has been a multi-year program that has many, many amazing spin-offs, including a high school program to have high school youth to engage in dialogue across these differences and communicate and humanize and become friends with each other in many aspects. Not that friendship is always a requirement, but it is lovely to see when
1: genuine friendships actually do emerge. A little more personal question. How have these initiatives impacted you
2: Many of them have been absolutely amazing to see and take part in. I am a Jewish American, and when I started all of my studies, I was interested in helping people, but did not have a strong connection to that identity. And I have no connection to Israel, for example, but I found myself in conversations about that and with people making a lot of assumptions about what I might think or believe about other countries, including Israel and Palestine. And so for me, engaging in research and looking at how people complicated those discussions and humanized those discussions was a really interesting and important component of my own growth to be able to have conversations and also research and think about how people have those conversations in places where I might be someone who is targeted or who people have made assumptions about. I have also been able to use much of my time with those groups as an amazing, amazing training and to now start to look at how I can apply that work to other forms of community conversation, like community dialogue, but also how I can help facilitate intergroup dialogues and of all kinds on my own campuses and in communities around me. So both impacted me personally, but also been a catalyst for my professional development and my ability to do conflict resolution and help others.
0: If war is not the answer here, Joanna Solomon, how do we help those struggling under repressive regimes gain liberation?
2: So while social justice organizing is not the core component of my work, it does exist. There are a lot of people that can probably speak better to that question who study how to organize large groups, how to help people change their government. My focus is helping people in those difficult situations or in times of relative peace, or after there are peace agreements, anywhere in that process to rehumanize each other, to start having those conversations again, or to have conversations that will help them organize and then better negotiate and communicate with their own governments. So my focus is that community organizing peace, how to change governmental structures is not my expertise.
0: Okay, fair enough. So what do you think maybe there's hope here in terms of creating a more peaceful world? Steven Pinker's book, Better Angels of Our Nature, documents the fact that the world is gradually, but surely, becoming more peaceful with a diminished number of people dying at the hands of other humans. Is that what you see? Is the world becoming less violent? Do we have reason to hope that a more peaceful world is possible?
2: I think that if you asked me that five years ago, when books like that came out, there was really clear evidence that in many ways, the world was moving toward nation states that did not go to war with each other. Despite the fact that there is still internal conflict in many countries, that there is quite a lot of injustice, which is much of my focus in countries, including the United States, and that there certainly are countries who have not given people the power that they have rights to. So the ability to vote and be themselves and But largely, what we were seeing was a statistical, at least, decline in nation-states going to war with other nation-states, coupled with an increase in better health care, so fewer people dying in situations of war. While that is probably still true in comparison to 100 years ago, we are now seeing that, in fact, that relative trend toward peace, was not as permanent as many of us would would like to see that there are countries like russia who are willing to invade their neighbors for power and there also are more issues in our own democracy as we saw on january 6th where we are not as secure in our rights and our peace as we may have assumed Five years ago. So hopefully that trend continues uh, in the right direction, but we have a lot of work to do both internationally and in our own country to make sure that we are not just addressing those numbers, like the number of deaths in war, which don't give us the full picture of peace. That's just a lack of full dying in war, something we need to address, but that we aren't just looking at that, that we are looking at a more holistic view of humanity and also looking at ensuring that we trend toward positive peace and people having rights over uh, who are their elected officials, rights over their bodies, rights um, to clean drinking water and fair housing, that all of those positive peace initiatives, those things that make our world a more just place, that all of those are also continuing to improve for people across the globe And we actually see some of those discussions happening as our world leaders right now are discussing climate and climate change and how we can address things like global warming. So all of those things need to be addressed for us to have that positive peace and continue that that trend in a way that is meaningful for all of us.
1: What is your message or evaluation of peace education in, in this?
2: Sure. For me, peace education is one of the most important components to bring communities back together and to give people the skills that many of us are lacking or didn't get in uh, middle school and high school in how to have difficult conversations across difference, across identity. And for many of us, we were taught that there are off. kind of brand topics or off limits topics like that you shouldn't talk about race or religion or money, finances at the dinner table. You shouldn't ask people about those things or topics. And So bringing the ability back to have more difficult conversations that are kind and where we listen, but also addressing that we have differences on is really important, and peace education is one of the core ways of doing that. That can mean having mediation programs in middle schools, it can mean initiatives like the Olive Tree Initiative that takes college students to complicate their views of the Middle East. It can also mean trainings like coming to an undergraduate program in Peace and Conflict Studies or a master's program in Peace and Conflict Studies, a PhD, looking at any of these topics. But altogether, those educations are really important. My specialty In all of that is experiential education to do the hands on community conversations, those conversations across groups and difference to really experience what it's like to have those conversations, facilitate those conversations and learn from them. I'm so much a proponent of this that I am running an intergroup dialogue workshop in February here at Kent State that really focuses on doing a full day training with a group called Hands Across the Hills that is uniquely able and organized to have conversations that include community organizing and topics across com- a community outside of Boston and a community in Kentucky that are culturally different, that have different lived experiences, that are situated in counties that voted differently. and to bring the hands across the hills, folks that have all of that knowledge and experience having those conversations into community with people here in Ohio and across the country and world that are going to come to this workshop to learn how to empathize and humanize, but also get through those difficult moments and learn from each other. So part of my job is to bring those educational experiences to our communities, to bring people together, to educate each other a lot of what I've learned in peace education and being an educator in the field of peace building is that while I have a lot of theories and research and official academic. Titles that those don't mean that I have more knowledge or more useful information about how communities can solve their own problems, can address their own needs. And so for me, I've learned a lot of my favorite peace education and peace building is bringing other people together that have similar experiences and sharing that knowledge with each other in order to figure out the best solutions that communities can figure out the best solutions for themselves.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned the Hands Across the Hills. We have interviewed Paula Green, the founder of Hands Across the Hills, and it was a wonderful interview. We uh, we really appreciate that Mm -hmm. interview, so I'm glad you're working with them. uh, That's amazing. And,
2: And part of my work with them is because Paula is someone who was an amazing peace builder in this field, and I've admired her work for years, and as she is no longer with us, to try my best to bring some of the amazing work that she did into other contexts, but also to keep some of that work uh, continuing with Hands Across the Hills as as I am needed. I am I'm not their core facilitator. Ben Fink of Hands Across the Hills continues to do that dialogue, but in workshops and trainings, Kent State and myself and Hands Across the Hills are partnering to continue some of those trainings that she was a major
1: part of. Yeah but that was one of the first organizations that we uh, were aware of but uh, thankfully there are so many more that I, I have noticed uh, coming together uh, they're very very similar to what she uh originated. Well expressions of American white ethno-nationalism in support of Blue Lives Matter is a paper you authored, with David Kaplan and Landon Hancock in July 2019. The pieces is Holmes Three related questions. Let's look at the first one. And that one is what is white ethno nationalism as it exists today within the United States?
2: I had the privilege of working on two pieces. One was the piece with Dr. Drs. Kaplan and Hancock and another piece with Dr. Adam Martin on Blue Lives Matter. One piece looked at expressions of white ethno-nationalism here in Ohio and included interviews with community members that support Blue Lives Matter. And the core questions of that piece are really investigating if the messages that we were seeing and other academics and government officials were seeing that were white ethno-nationalists in the main web pages and messages of political elites matched or tracked with what local people that supported Blue Lives Matter were feeling. The second piece was looking at competitive victimhood. So some of those national messages and how Blue Lives Matter was designed to be a counter message to Black Lives Matter. And the white ethno-nationalism piece that runs through that is the basic belief That in the United States, sometimes in other countries as well, but this was focused here, that in the United States, that either white, usually male, usually Christian in a certain kind of way, people should be prioritized over people from other backgrounds, faith, or genders, or that those people should not be part of the United States. other people should not be part of the United States at all. So this belief in the supremacy of people who are of a very particular skin color, background, often gender, and uh, religion. So the work looked at how those messages resonated on some of the national web pages and in national messaging in both cases, how that messaging referred to Black Lives Matter, and in particular looked at the idea of a long-standing u.s trope that particularly black men are somehow more dangerous than others which has been discredited over and over again but still exists kind of in our social milieu and was picked up by the blue lives matter movement as kind of justification for um, many shootings of unarmed black men and occasionally black women as well And the dehumanization that the Blue Lives Matter movement kind of put upon Black people in the United States, as well as how local people that felt like they were Blue Lives Matter supporters resonated with that message or not. And while there were people that did resonate with that message that we interviewed... There were also many people, including black women, who resonated with the idea that we needed to support police and that we needed public safety and therefore called themselves Blue Lives Matter supporters, but in fact did not in any way resonate with a white
1: nationalist message. Okay, I think you've answered all three of those questions. Uh, uh, Let's move on to uh, the next question.
0: Johannes Solomon, an article, and you're talking about Black Lives Matter here in Blue Lives Matter, an article titled Dynamics of American Counter Movement, Blue Lives Matter, end quote, by Van Key and Latoka Keys and published by the Sociology Compassion in August 2022. They write this, quote, past research has found that Blue Lives Matter activism and support for law enforcement since the 2016 election has been associated with greater support from conservatives, while Black Lives Matter protests are usually supported by liberals, end quote. So how do you respond to the conflict between the generally, quote, liberal Black Lives Matter and a generally more conservative Police Lives Matter citizens' concerns and what, Are some considerations for bringing these two opposing groups together in a peaceful mutual agreement here? Or is it possible?
2: So the first thing I want to reference is that Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter are not equal. They are not the same and they are not created for the same reasons. Black Lives Matter was created because in many ways, especially structural ways and by the police, Black lives were not held as important as white lives, and Black people were being dis- are being disproportionately killed, and that has been going on since the creation of this country. Blue Lives Matter was created as a response to defend police officers that had been accused of shootings largely of, in the original cases, Black men. Being a police officer is certainly an important identity, but it is one that can be put down, whereas being Black in America is not an identity that can be put down. It is an identity and an identity that causes more risk to you if you are Black, regardless of your education or social status or behavior. So they are not equal movements. And in much of my work, part of what I need to do is acknowledge that there are differences in power, there are differences in reasons why things were created, and to address those differences in power. The Blue Lives Matter movement on their national page for many years, although it is often in flux, and I have not looked at it this week, expoused ideas that are white ethno-nationalist meaning not just wanting police officers to be safe on their jobs, certainly that's something most people want, but also that in particular, black communities were threatening them and that black people were or are less lawful or less good than white communities. And we have plenty of data to note that there is over-policing in black communities, and that there are many laws that exist, some of which are starting to be rectified, that disproportionately affect Black Americans and incarcerate Black Americans. So these part of my work is acknowledging that there are structural issues and hate issues behind some of the National Blue Lives Matter webpages. And funders, which does not mean that on the ground level, people who support the police, who want there to be crime in America, that are concerned about changes in their communities, who want to be safe in their own communities, that people, everyday people on the ground, can't come together and have productive conversations. We had many people that came into the Blue Lives Matter interviews. That had not had, had local Blue Lives Matter contacts, had friendships with police, and that also believed in Black Lives Matter. That these are not necessarily in an individual's mind contradictory, that at minimum there are people that can support the police or support having safe communities that are Blue, Black Lives Matter supporters as well. It's complicated. The issue of policing and how resources are allocated, that they tend to be over allocated toward police or militarized funding, and that communities repeatedly express that what they need is more school counselors and more social workers and more help as opposed to more police oversight continues. But everyday people are able to have these conversations And often the polarization of political parties or the introduction of white supremacist ideas, especially right now in America on the political right, are complicating the ability for people to see other people as human beings that may in fact share very similar interests with themselves. One of the things I really pay attention to in my work around identity is that unless there is a preponderance of evidence and intent, I do not call individuals racist. Acts are racist. Just like when I work with incarcerated people, people do things for different reasons, and it is the impact on others that often matters most. So are there instances of racist incidents by particular police officers sure where we would even consider calling an institution racist is where there is knowledge of that where there's systematic problems and where those problems aren't addressed purposefully or because of neglect that those issues aren't addressed so often we use words that pin people into corners and racist is one of those words that we often use, especially for people that don't believe the same things as ourselves. And at least in humanizing, in having conversations, it is one of the most harmful things that we can use because it really paints a group into a corner and doesn't allow for the possibility of change. So part of my job is always allowing the space to say that your worst action it's not going to define you, and that you have the ability to change, to reconcile, to make it better, and to really live up to the values that you want to live up to, even if you've done something that was based on a mistake, a belief that you no longer hold, uh, or something that might be fear based in how you were raised or what society is telling you to believe and that you can change and be in conversation, especially if you are willing to learn from those that have been harmed.
1: That's a very reassuring uh, position. that it, it reminds me of the sort of justice that we, we explored in a, a number of uh, uh, interviews. Much of your past work looks at community building as a part of community organizing. That includes work uh, with students on uh, a listening project and community dialogue, and you'll host an upcoming Community dialogue workshop happening in February at Kent State. You can give that link if you like, but would you speak to the purpose of this Kent State conference? Sure. So, a lot
2: of the work that is really close to my heart is working alongside communities and listening to what kinds of processes. Communities want to see happen. And sometimes that's facilitating conversations with government officials. Sometimes it's helping with community organizing. But one of my specialties that I am able to help with when communities are interested is a community dialogue process. And that's a process that brings together stakeholders and community members from across the community. So that would mean making sure that we have representatives from local institutions, and government, but also representatives and everyday folks that are members of local churches or small business owners, teachers, students, parents, all of these different groups that come together to make our society. And we bring people together in conversation and help people plan for both how to have more productive conversations, but also for what is wanted by the people in the room for their communities and what people in the room can do to start to address those issues and goals that they have. So community dialogue can serve many functions and is Forward to much of my own work in community organizing to really bring those people and conversations together to both address past wrongs, but also it's in the most part a forward facing kind of conversation where we acknowledge what we don't like and what we want to make better. And then we find ways to, as a group, Um, sometimes in an eight-hour day-long session and sometimes over months and weeks of how we want to be as a community together. So the community dialogue workshop that I mentioned is a training that will bring together not only my perspective, but multiple, including Hands Across the Hills, including people from colleges and universities, from community groups, both in the U.S., and internationally to be in conversation with each other about ways that we can have those productive conversations with each other, even when there is identity-based difference where we might not disagree with each other on the policy outcomes, but where we need a place to start and to engage with each other to begin that process of positive peace building, of creating equity and justice with each other. So that workshop, hopefully it will be one place where we can start to make that process happen.
0: Johanna Solomon, you, you mentioned your book, Four Dead in Ohio, and the conflict and sometimes violent conflict that has happened and is happening here in the United States as a result of political disagreements. Uh, there have been a host of challenges to the U.S. Representative Republic. Beginning January 6, 2021, the insurrection but including violent acts like the ones committed against political leaders Kathy Griffin, Paul Pelosi, other politicians, violent threats against poll workers, attempts to replace political officials with biased Secretary of State who will only certify elections if their party candidates win. The mainland news now tell us that the Nevada vigilantes dressed in military fatigue, sporting automatic rifles, are now uh, casing voting facility. Some 44,000 Americans died as a result of gun violence in 2021. Is the U.S. beginning to look like an out-of-control third world country and is our representative democracy in danger of collapsing? As a political scientist, a political psychologist, a social psychologist, a cultural anthropologist what's your remedy? How do we tone down the violence and rhetoric so we can begin to communicate in the manner that advocates for peace and justice?
2: I I am a political scientist and political psychologist. I can't claim cultural anthropologist, but those are all really good and concerning questions. I think the cultural piece that I always want to bring in is that often we in the United States have this idea of American exceptionalism, and we believe that there are, quote-unquote, third world or less developed nations that are different from us, in some qualitative important way and i don't use those terms because in fact when we look at other countries and other nations from a scientific lens looking at data and stability we know that the united states is not the most democratic democracy of all nations, there are countries that are scoring higher on those scales, and that there are countries we have a lot to learn from. I have been looking at, for example, the Nigerian elections that have a similar multi-state system, a similar system where people that have more financial wealth often rise to power, and that are... Is also voting in a really meaningful election where we will, where questions of democracy and continued democracy are on the table. In the United States, I think that we often forget we are a young democracy and that individuals, each and every one of us, needs to fight for democracy and believe in it. And it, it absolutely was worrying for me as a citizen of the United States, as well as a political scientist, to see people that did not believe in conceding an election if they lost an election, that um, kind of at every level of ballots. One of the hopeful components for me is that whatever party you wanna vote for or believe in, that largely Americans rejected people that did not want to support democracy and to support the idea that whoever voters elect should then be our representative. And that within that system, or using non to challenge that system, we right. can continue to fight for the causes and rights that we believe in as individuals or parties or groups.
0: Okay, so Dr. Solomon, we are unfortunately uh, coming to an end of our time here. Would you have any uh, last thoughts? uh, Did you like to share with our listeners?
1: I
2: think we've covered a lot and thank you so much for inviting me onto your program. People are welcome to get in touch with me if they have any questions about anything I've said or if you are an undergraduate or graduate student thinking of coming into the field of Peace and Conflict Studies or if you're a community group that is interested in processes of community dialogues, I am always happy to speak to people inside and outside of academia and work alongside groups to try to do conflict resolution and peace building. So really thank you for this opportunity. And I, I hope that I will be in touch with you and many of your listeners in the future.
1: Our conversation today has been with Dr. Johanna Solomon, Assistant Professor at Kent State University in the School of Peace
0: and Conflict Studies. You can listen to Solutions of Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. We air Solutions of Violence on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. The Solutions of Violence program that features Dr. Johanna Solomon will air again November 29th and 30th. The program featuring Dr. Solomon will be placed in our archives November 30th, 2022. To listen via our archives, visit us at boardvideo.org, choose program archives, and scroll down to the Solutions of Balance program that features Dr. Johanna Solomon. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Dr. Solomon, you can reach us with the following email address, solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. We wish you and yours wellness, safety, and peace in these challenging COVID times. Until next time, keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thanks for listening.